My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO. It's my great delight this evening to introduce Ghislaine Wood from England, from the Victoria and Albert Museum. Ghislaine Wood is curator of the V&A exhibition Surreal Things, Surrealism and Design, 2007. She curated the V&A exhibition Art Deco, 1910 to 1913, 2003, and co-edited the accompanying book. She was assistant curator of the V&A exhibition Art Nouveau, 1890 to 1914, in 2000. Her publications include Art Nouveau and the Erotic, 2000. It would be fun to have that here. Essential Art Deco, 2003, and The Surreal Body, Fetish and Fashion, 2007. She's a member of the Fort Victoria and Albert Museum's research department. Ghislaine Wood. Um, thanks very much, Gillian. I should start by saying what a joy it's been to work with the AGO. Um, we've been uh, working on this project for some time because this exhibition actually uh, first uh, was staged in London in 2007. So it's kind of hard for me to remember um, some of it. It then moved on to uh, Rotterdam, to the Boymans Museum, and to the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. So it's been quite funny seeing it in two different Gary buildings. Um, but we were absolutely thrilled when the AGO approached us um, about bringing the show to North America. And we're very, very pleased that under difficult circumstances, um, the, the show has opened here and uh, with um, some wonderful additional objects from American and Canadian collections, things we couldn't afford to bring to Europe, but we've been able to add in here. So do look out for the works from MoMA, from the Wadsworth Athenaeum, from the National Gallery in Canada and from the AGO's um, marvellous um, collections. So, surreal things. Um, this is, some of you may have seen it already, so um, I hope this won't be too boring for you. Um, but uh, the, the surreal things is, is not a show, um, it's not a survey show about surrealism. It is a show that takes up a very particular aspect um, of the subject. And uh, it's, quite a, it's quite an odd thing that there are shows on surrealism sort of every five minutes. I mean, there are always shows going on about surrealism, whether it's monographic shows on particular artists or shows such as, um, uh, such as you know, the surrealism exhibition that took place last year in, uh, in Europe um, that travelled about. But uh, this show takes up a completely sort of unique aspect, and it's rather surprising that no one's ever thought of really looking at this before. It looks at uh, the commercialisation of surrealism. Surrealism um, was quickly kind of commodified during the 1930s and entered all spheres of design. It drastically affected fashion, fashion advertising, the fashion magazine, photography, um, film, um, interior design and architecture. And that's really the theme of this exhibition. And of course, that grows very much out of the V&A's own collection. For those of you who don't know, the V&A is um, sort of the, the, the biggest uh, museum dedicated to design and the decorative arts in the world. And um, really, it was while working on the Art Deco exhibition in 2002 that I realised that we had this very interesting group of works that was either made by surrealist artists or by designers um, influenced by surrealism in this sort of classic period, you know, the before the Second World War. So it really is a show that was generated from the objects in the V&A. 
So um, what I'm going to do this evening is just give you a sort of an overview of, of the show. It's about 180 works in all media. So we do include fine art. Um, there are a, a number of wonderful paintings and sculpture in the exhibition, but they are included to draw sort of um, formal and conceptual relationships with the design to help explain the process um, of the uh, sort of commodification of surrealism. So we start uh, with the first section of the ballet, uh, uh, the first section of the exhibition, which explores the ballet. And the ballet is a, is a very good starting point um, for this show because not only does it immediately signal that this is quite unlike any other exhibition you will have seen on surrealism, it also um, was often the sort of jumping-off point for artists into the wider world of design. And that was largely through the patronage of the Ballet Russe, um, the company um, that was set up by Serge Diaghilev uh, in 1909 and uh, created some of the most avant-garde and exciting ballet productions of the century. And, of course, Diaghilev had a policy of, in, of employing contemporary avant-garde artists to produce uh, designs for the company. And what you're looking at here is a reconstruction of Giorgio de Chirico's uh, stage set for Le Bal of 1929. Um, We're very lucky in the V&A to have very rich collections of ballet russe material, and, and all the costumes you see in that this first section of the show come from the V&A. But there's also um, another very good reason for starting with a ballet, and it also gets right to the heart of this subject. Um, of course, many of you will know that surrealism... Uh, was a politically radical avant-garde art movement. It was a movement established to try and uh, uh, change perceptions of reality by plumbing the kind of depths of dream and the unconscious. Uh, but it also had a very direct political agenda to create an art form that could be allied to communism. Um, so uh, what, we, what we have here is, of course, a tension right at the heart of the subject between the political intention of surrealism and um, its rapid uh, commercialization and, of course, um, the artistic freedom of artists to work in whatever spheres they like. And uh, what I'm showing you here is a copy of a leaflet that was distributed um, at the first night of the production of Romeo and Juliet, which took place in 1926 and was designed by Max Ernst and Joanne Miro, who were both, of course, um, surrealist painters. Both had been sort of drawn into the surrealist camp in, uh, after 1924 when the first manifesto was written. So they were seen as exponents of surrealist painting, but André Breton, the leader of the surrealist group, and Louis Aragon um, really uh, sort of objected to them working for the Ballet Russe, and particularly for Diaghilev, of course, who was a white Russian, you know, a Menshevik. Um, so um, it, this provides a good moment to explore this tension and of course the first night was actually uh, disrupted by this gang of men who went in and blew whistles and shouted and distributed this leaflet and completely disrupted um, that first night and in the uh, exhibition we have a couple of the um, designs for the production of Romeo and Juliet this is um, a design for a backdrop well it's a painting that was then adapted to um, become a design for the backdrop uh, for one of the Max Dance um, scenes in the ballet. And uh, then we've also been very lucky to include the AGO's wonderful uh, Miro. This is a Miro from 1926, um, which is very directly related to the designs for the Romeo and Juliet uh, production, but of course also explores his use of unconscious uh, processes. Miro used to put sort of brush to, to canvas and then sort of just let his mind run away with him. Um, and uh, so this represents this first phase of surrealist um, sort of practice in painting. We then move on to the next section of the exhibition, uh, which takes up the theme of surrealism and the object. Um, 
the, as, I, as I've mentioned, Surrealism really, in the first phase, is a literary movement. Uh, most of the, th- the first things produced were, were automatic poems and texts, uh, and, and then moving on into painting and sort of graphic design collage. Um, but in the late 1920s, um, around 1930, Salvador Dali um, suggests that perhaps um, the Surrealists... Uh, movement is not engaging with the material world sufficiently well and that actually what they should start doing is creating objects. Um, So he really instigates this push, this shift away from sort of painting and text towards the production of the object. And what you're looking at here is an image from the very first Surrealist Object Exhibition of 1936 which took place in in the Paris Gallery of Charles Raton. Um, and, it, and what you'll see in that case is a number of uh, different types of works. There's, uh, of course, uh, Duchamp's Bottle Rack. Um, uh, Duch- this is actually a work produced by the Dada movement. Um, it's slightly earlier than Surrealism, but the Surrealists saw this as a sort of arch- archetypal Surrealist work, so they continued to include Duchamp's pieces in their exhibitions. Duchamp never formally joined the movement, but sort of stayed on the periphery of it. Um, just going back, um, what you also see there is uh, the inclusion of non-Western art. So the Surrealists collected African, Oceanic, and uh, North American um, pieces. Uh, they were particularly interested in non-Western art because it sort of represented uh, magical properties, the fetish, and it also didn't fit into any idea of sort of the Western commodity. It completely fell out of those um, those kind of categories. So they were very interested in, in the sort of magical elements uh, of those kind of objects. Also, they're using mathematical objects. They liked things that kind of, you know, uh, could be read in all sorts of different ways. So... Um, you know, a number of different types of works were being included in this exhibition, but probably the most important um, sort of development is the creation of the true surrealist object, and this really is a product of sort of Dali's um, extraordinary imagination and uh, innov- 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 innovation. Um, what I'm showing here is the aphrodisiac jacket, um, uh, a, a true surrealist composite object, um, and and surrealist objects. Dali suggested should be made from pre-existing materials. They should kind of critique consumer culture by picking up things that have already been used and perhaps discarded and and then you put them together in surprising and unusual ways to create a whole other chain of associations. And what's interesting about the aphrodisiac jacket, um, if I just go back to the image of the exhibition, is that in front of the jacket you'll see a bottle of creme de menthe. And what you were actually supposed to do is take a glass off the jacket, fill, fill it up with creme de menthe and get slowly drunk in front of this jacket, thereby having a wonderful, totally subjective relationship with this piece. Um, so, you know, there was always a lot of humour in Dali's, Dali's approaches and that actually this, you know, the only way you were going to have a sort of fantasy relationship with this jacket was by getting uh, inebriated. Um, and, of course, what's interesting about that is that this is one of the first examples of you know, visitor or viewer participation, which is something we see in contemporary art uh, all the time. So the Surrealist composite object. And um, it's important, this section, because what these objects do is then provide a template by which sort of commercial designers... Um, designers outside the movement can start borrowing ideas, borrowing sort of um, strategies from the Surrealists. And indeed, Dali himself quickly realises how commercially um, successful these works are and and, uh, moves into their their commodification. Um, This is a wonderful work in the exhibition that I'm particularly pleased to have. Uh, It's um, sort of the archetypal fashionable Surrealist piece. It's by the uh, the, uh, 
artist Oscar Dominguez, who was actually born in the Canary Islands. He was a slightly younger generation than Breton and Aragon, so he was that sort of younger group of surrealists coming into the movement in the 30s. Uh, and what's extraordinarily important about it is that uh, it was photographed by Man Ray um, in one of the archetypal fashion photographs of the period. This is Man Ray's image of a model wearing a V&A gown, you know, relaxing in this extraordinary, almost dreaming in this extraordinary um, surrealist object. And what this image does is bring fashion and surrealism together in this powerful image that then made surrealism hugely um, appealing and fashionable. So, and, and the Dominguez wheelbarrow hasn't really been exhibited much before um, this, this exhibition, so we were very pleased that the Musée d'Art Modern in Paris actually had it restored uh, for the show. And uh, in this, this um, part of the exhibition, we juxtapose the Raton exhibition of 36 with a, with a later show, one of 1939, that also took place in Paris in the gallery of uh, René Drouin, uh, and this is an exhibition that has kind of fallen out of the history of surrealism. Um, I show this object because this is a piece that belongs to the V&A, and this was really the starting point for the entire exhibition. It's a piece that um, sat in a sort of rather sort of lonely bay of objects in our 20th century study collection at the V&A that had a sort of odd mixture of things that don't really fit into other categories. And uh, I realised that obviously this was you know, a monumental piece that must have been made for an exhibition. I mean, the quality of it is extraordinary. It's one of Berman, Eugene Berman's best pieces of paintings of, uh, of this period. But of course, it's a domestic object. It's a wardrobe. So what was it made for? Um, so we began to do the research, and uh, we were lucky to... Well, we, we, we knew of this article by... Um, it, sorry, in Harper's Bazaar, uh, photographs by George Honigan Huna, again, a fashion shoot that, of course, shows these models wearing these extraordinary sort of gowns by, you know, um, Mambouchet and Schiaparelli, posed in front of, um, of course, the Eugene Berman cabinet. But on the other page were these other objects that, of course, we didn't know where they were and we didn't really know about um, this, this Drouin exhibition. Um, and what the story sort of um, gradually revealed itself to be was that Lear Castelli, who some of you may have heard of um, uh, because he was one of the main dealers and promoters of abstract expressionism, the sort of giant of the post-war American art scene, was in Paris before the war, young man, casting about for a kind of commercial gallery idea, and he kind of hit upon doing surrealist furniture because surrealism was so fashionable. So he asked his childhood friend, Leonor Finney, who was the, uh, the surrealist uh, woman painter, to kind of get some of her mates together to create pieces for this exhibition, and that's exactly what she did. Uh, and we were very lucky to be able to track down the extraordinary Leonor Finney cabinet, um, the cabinet anthropomorphique, where you see Finney herself um, sort of represented as this wonderful sort of metamorphic giant um, woman, woman and sort of half woman, half animal, but also extraordinarily sort of glamorous uh, and appealing at the same time. Um, and then other works that sort of uh, emerged from this show, um, perhaps most uh, 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 shockingly, the first uh, Merritt Oppenheim bird's leg table, which, um, of course, was made in an edition in 1970. So people knew it from that later edition. This is the original piece that you'll see in the exhibition, and this was made for that exhibition because Finney and Oppenheim were great friends. So the, the lovely um, bird's leg table with all its associations of sort of predator and prey and sort of the ultimate surrealist object actually was made as a piece of interior um, design for this exhibition. So really what the, this exhibition does is show that by 1939, surrealism had become um, very fashionable and had entered the sort of domestic sphere. 
So we then move on to the third section of the exhibition, which takes up uh, the theme of the interior, the domestic interior or the home. Um, it's called the illusory interior. And um, what we find is that many, many surrealist artists um, explored the home as a subject matter. And that was uh, for a number of reasons. Of course, Freud had written um, extensively about uh, the imagery of the home in dream analysis and what it represented. And of course, it, you know, all sorts of things represented, were represented by the home. So walking upstairs represented copulation and looking out of a window represented something else. So of course, Freudian and dream analysis of the home was very appealing for the surrealists and that sort of drew them to it as a subject matter. Um, but what's also interesting and sort of came out of the research for the exhibition is that we found that many of the female surrealists also really looked at the home as a subject matter. So uh, they saw it as a way of kind of disrupting um, ideas of gender and of sort of woman as homemaker and wife and, you know, mother. Um, so we see a number of extremely interesting treatments of the home in the female surrealist uh, artist's work. This is an image by um, the British uh, artist Leonora Carrington, um, and she very often sort of either pictured herself in the home or wrote about the home. And it's a stage design, in fact, for her play Penelope, which was um, based around um, a house in the upper sort of um, reaches of the house. The sort of the young girl lives in her nursery in this magical world um, that's all about escape and fantasy. And in the bottom of the house, the father lives, you know, the patriarch who sort of is an architect, a, a modernist architect, of course, you know, sort of creating this sort of rational world devoid of any fantasy or fun or, or um, uh, you know, childlike behaviour. So, so th um, this painting actually does represent um, a text as well. And, and that just does bring me to the point that another reason for why the interior becomes such an important subject matter in surrealism is because it is an area of debate in the 20s and 30s with the modernist movement, with obviously... Um, uh, many sort of architects like Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe are really changing the way that um, people feel they should, or you know, how they feel people should live and creating a, this sort of rationalist vision of the home that's about sort of health and hygiene and not at all about all the things that the surrealists were sort of interested in. <clears throat> but probably the artist who most frequently uses the home or um, parts of the home as as a subject is uh, René Magritte. He frequently uses sort of doors or windows or mirrors or chimneys as, 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 um, as ways of sort of disrupting senses of reality. An unusual thing will come out of the chimney or you can see through the window. Um, it's a sort of a, a portal onto an alternate reality. And of course, one of the other things he very frequently does is the kind of incongruous change of scale. Suddenly you'll get a giant object. Um, in this case, in the AGO's painting, Birthday, a giant stone contained within you know, the domestic room, the bourgeois uh, home. So we move from the images, painted images, of, of, of the surreal in interior to a real surreal interior, if you will. And, of course, there weren't very many of them. Um, you had to be very rich to build uh, a surrealist um, home. And this is the house of Edward James. Edward James was one of the great patrons of surrealism in the 1920s and 30s, and indeed after the war. I mean, he's arguably one of the most important collectors modern art collectors of the century. Um, he supported both Dali and Magritte in the 30s and bought nearly all of their works in that period. But Edward also saw himself as a surrealist. He wrote poetry and was a bit of a sort of a dilettante. Um, 
This is a view of the back of his house. He had an enormous sort of 18th century great stately home that he didn't live in. He actually lived in the hunting lodge. This is, this is um, Monkton House, which was the hunting lodge that his father had had built by Edwin Lutchins, the British architect. Uh, and underneath this extraordinary purple stucco is, in fact, vernacular brickwork. And I should just add that Matthew Tattlebaum, the director, uh, was telling me yesterday that when he'd sat at a dinner with Prince Charles, uh, I don't know when this was, in the last couple of years, that uh, Prince Charles had been asked who his favourite architect was, and he'd said Edwin Lutchins. No, he'd been asked who his contemporary architect was. He said Edwin Lutchins. He's been dead for about 50 years. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. But um, th this house, so this, this house he had completely remodelled by um, Kit Nicholson, and, uh, and uh, Hugh Casson in about 1930, and it became this extraordinary fancy surrealist uh, house. He covered it in purple stucco. He had these faux plaster sheets that were painted lime green hung out of the windows. He had giant palm trees um, carved that sort of flanked the entranceway and had clock towers that weren't clock towers. They were kind of faux clock towers that told you other things like the days of the week. Um, so it was a, a sort of fancy um, house in which he kept many of his surrealist works. Um, and of course, the surrealism continued on to the, into the interior. Uh, this is a view of the upstairs landing, uh, looking down the landing towards uh, one of the works that he owned, uh, Paul Delvaux, who's a Belgian uh, surrealist painter, his painting Les Belles de Nuit, or the, you know, the Beauties of the Night. And what's interesting here is that um, Edward very often created these complex, um, sort of multi-layered uh, approaches to the interior. Um, he hung his works in relation to antiques and in relation to contemporary design to create these dreamlike spaces. And what you see here is the architecture of the landing being echoed in the painting as if you could you move from the physical space into the dream space of the painting. You know, you're moving into this psychological extension of the house. And indeed, Monkton was, was completely modelled like that. It was supposed to be a dream space where you could slip between the paintings and the, and the real um, spaces of the, of the house. And another element here is if you see the antique bench, which, of course, had, belonged to his, in, had been in his family and belonged to his parents... Um, it has a lion's paw foot, uh, and of course the carpet in the landing had dogs' footprints going up and down it. So it was as if the, the, the you know the the bench had come to life and had sort of walked down the gallery and created these these footprints. Um, and just as sort of an aside, because it's 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 a it's a sort of nice little story. Um, in Edward Edward's uh, London house on the staircase in his London house, he'd had woven the footprint of his w wife, who was a ballerina, Tilly Losh, beautiful ballerina. He'd had her footprint woven into the carpet in this wonderful sort of you know, wet footprint into the carpet. But when Tilly left him, he had all the carpet ripped up and he had it replaced with his dog's footprints. <laughs> <clears throat> but probably the most famous pieces and the things you'll know um, that were made for Moncton were the collaborative pieces between Salvador Dali and Edward himself. This is the lip sofa. There are several um, examples of this, and the one you'll see, the wonderful one upstairs, is actually a, a beautiful red and pink felt um, example. Um, the lip sofa, of course, was based on an idea that Dali had come up with in 1936, which was Mae West's face usable as a surrealist apartment. Um, and some of you may know that image. Actually, the, 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 the collage uh, is in the collections of the Art Institute in Chicago and never travels, but it is an, a very famous, um, iconic um, image. Uh, but, of course, he actually had those objects realised. Edward had them made by his decorating firm, so the, the, the lips did indeed come to life and were used as furnishings for Moncton. The other work that was also made for Moncton is probably one of the most iconic um, examples of the surrealist object, 
um, is the lobster telephone. But of course, these were made as working telephones for Moncton. And I show the white one, which we're very lucky to have, because um, he had them made in different colours. He had black and orange ones and white ones to suit different colour schemes in the different parts of the house. Um, so the lobster telephone. And then one of the lovely bits of research that came out of the exhibition um, and objects that we found and were able to acquire for the v collections is this tea service um, by um, uh, Royal Crown Derby. It was a commission Edward um, got Royal Crown Derby to create the forms, but of course it's decorated with a plink glove motif, which um, comes from Dali again. So it has exactly the same design, sort of genesis and process as the lips sofa and the lobster telephone. So we then move on to the other, um, exa- the other sort of case study of a surrealist interior, and this is the home of the Mexican millionaire, uh, Carlos de Bestigui. He lived in Paris, and he had uh, an apartment on the top of a house on the Champs-Élysées, and what he uh, did was have Le Corbusier design this modernist apartment on the top of the building. Um, so, you know, a very, you know, st- you know sort of uh, typical example of... Le Corbusier's work, uh, very rationalist, fantastic sort of technological developments, like he had sort of sliding doors and a projector that kind of the wall went back and the projector came out. Uh, but what Carlos did was then create this extraordinary sort of fantasy surrealist space, and Le Corbusier was furious. You know, he was one of his sort of great works, and it had been ruined with, with surrealism. Um, but what he, what he did was create uh, one of the apartments that b- became hugely influential in the period, and it was really the roof garden that people um, particularly remembered. What you're looking at here is the steps up to the roof garden with the Arc de Triomphe uh, in, the, in the distance. Um, but what he did was create this, this, this absolutely gorgeous sort of outdoor salon. He had the furniture from the salon below recreated in stone, um, such as the commode, and then created a sort of salon, you know, replete with a sort of daisy-strewn carpet. Um, and, of course, you could look through the mirror. The mirror had some glass in it, and you could see, see yourself sort of reflected onto the Arc de Triomphe. So there was this wonderful sort of deconstructed approach to the monuments of Paris. You could only see a bit of the Eiffel Tower and, and a you know, small portion of the, of the Arc de Triomphe. But because this was published in Architectural Review, uh, it, it was seen by many people and was uh, you know, very influential for younger artists and uh, designers. So then we move to the next section of the exhibition. This takes up the theme of nature. It's called Nature Made Strange. And it explores um, you know, one of the great surrealist preoccupations. Nature as a subject matter within surrealism um, was, you know, was sort of extremely productive. It was a, a rich theme that many surrealist artists um, explored. Um, and why it's particularly important for this exhibition because it results in the development of biomorphic imagery, which dramatically affects uh, the worlds of design and architecture. And what I'm showing here um, is the AGO's ARP relief. Um, ARP was really the, the first figure, to the first artist, hands up, to develop biomorphic imagery. And he had started in 1910 with drawings of sort of grasses and pebbles. And in the 20s, he moved on to these wooden, wonderful wooden reliefs where he laid up layers of wood, uh, creating these sort of biomorphic shapes, which were multi-referential. They could be read as noses and cheeks, this is called nose and cheeks, or they could be pools or stones or clouds or whatever. I mean, they, it, was the bi- it was the beginning of that sort of biomorphic imagery where, you know, you could read a number of different um, things into it. Um, but we also get various surrealist artists uh, using automatic techniques to sort of explore the themes of nature. And this is um, the same artist who created the wheelbarrow. This is Oscar Dominguez. And he um, created a technique called del calcomania, 
um, which actually involved um, having sort of two sort of sandwiching ink between two surfaces and then moving the top surface so that you got these extraordinary shapes created and very often they created sort of mineral forms you know they looked like they were sort of natural um, structures um, in this case we have a sort of a line and a bicycle being fused together I mean he, he adapted them slightly afterwards he altered them a little bit but um, it was a technique that often um, you know explored natural natural uh, imagery um, and then of course we get the, the development of within surrealism of the found object um, the surrealists um, explored all sorts of sort of uh, automatic processes and um, one of them was the sort of chance encounter, the sort of finding a piece of stone or a, a piece of driftwood um, and um, sort of exhibiting it for what it is, for its sort of, you know, its, its magical properties, um, the properties inherent in the, in the material itself. So this is a little sculpture, a little piece of driftwood found by Isamu Noguchi and then mounted um, as a sculpture and, of course, bears so close relationship with uh, many other artists working at this time. I mean, in, in the case upstairs, you'll see examples by Henry Moore, by Arp, by um, many artists who are, who are using found objects. And one of the most lovely is this collaborative piece by, um, by Picasso and his um, mistress at the time, Francois Gillot. They were living in the south of France in the early 50s and um, collecting pieces um, from the beaches um, in, in France. And here we see sort of bones and stones picked up and the, the stone pendant at the bottom was then painted and carved by Picasso in the into the form of an owl. Um, and this, you'll see upstairs, uh, there's a famous photograph um, of Francois Gio with Picasso holding an umbrella, and she's wearing this necklace in it. And uh, uh, Francois Gio uh, later talked about how important this collaborative process was, this sort of finding pieces and pu putting them together into these, into these works. And actually, that is a sort of a theme that we explore in the exhibition. There are several works in the show that show this, um, how rich this collaboration was in Surrealism. But of course, it really is um, the spread of this biomorphic imagery into American art and design, which is um, so important for this show. And I show here um, an image of uh, Roberto Matters um, from 1939, a painting by Matter. It's actually the AGOs. Um, and of course, Matter was a, a very important figure. Um, many of the European surrealists were fleeing Europe and arriving in the, in the States in the late 1930s and 40s, but they were sort of unapproachable. People like Breton, the younger generation of American artists, found them very inaccessible. Breton had a lot of difficulty kind of settling in the States. And it was, it was really um, around Roberto Matter that a lot of sort of the activity coalesced. He was younger, he was really enthusiastic, he promoted the ideas of surrealism to this younger generation, people like um, Jackson Pollock, Robert uh, Motherwell, um, many of the um, abstract expressionists went to lectures by Matter's friend, Gordon Oslo Ford, that, that promoted the use of automatic uh, techniques. And uh, particular amongst that was the aesthetic strand of, of, of biomorphism. Uh, and then you get sort of the, uh, this younger generation um, absorbing uh, those ideas. And what we're looking at here is a table designed by Isamu Noguchi. Noguchi had been in Paris in the 20s. I mean, he could have sort of picked up surrealism then, but he didn't. He, he was very much influenced by the surrealists arriving in the late 1930s, and particularly by his friendship with Achille Gorky. Gorky was, a, was terribly enthusiastic about um, the surrealists. And uh, this sort of prompted Noguchi to start exploring surrealist ideas. And here, this table was 
was actually made for Philip Goodwin, who was um, on the board at MoMA. And, of course, what it looks like is a found object. It looks like a piece of driftwood that's just sort of washed up like that, but, of course, it's not. It's a very, very carefully crafted um, object that makes all sorts of different references to um, Henry Moore, to Arp, to, um, you know, Cyrillus working in this um, biomorphic um, vein. Um, but I think uh, what, 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 where biomorphism sort of reaches a much wider audience is in Noguchi's commercial production. Of course, he formed a relationship with Herman Miller and in the late 1940s and 50s um, helped um, sort of spawn this, this huge fashion for biomorphic furniture and biomorphic interior design um, in, in the States. And what we're looking at here is um, the great IN70 sofa, the cloud form sofa, designed in the late 1940s, and it's a sort of cross between landscape, sculpture, and design. I mean, it is enormous, and it's one of my favourite things in the show upstairs, but it is wonderful because of its multi-referential nature. It, it's sort of like clouds, and it's stones and pools and a landscape. Um, and interestingly, when this came out, um, uh, there were sort of magazine articles talking about uh, sort of associating it with free form um, and with free association, of course, a, um, a technique that was, had been brought in from uh, psychoanalysis. So they saw they, they they made the connection between free association and free form. Um, so, and of course, those objects, you know, the, the sort of larger production of objects through Herman Miller, although this actually didn't go into huge production, but a number of other pieces did, um, had a dramatic influence. Of course, the other figure that was very important, the other architect uh, and designer who was very important for this spread of a biomorphic aesthetic was Friedrich Kiesler. Kiesler uh, was an Austrian architect. He'd been trained as a modernist. Um, he was one of the last people to be trained in Destal. Um, but he was always very interested in the subjective and the psychological um, aspects um, of architecture, so that naturally drew him to the Surrealists. And uh, what he did was design um, this interior, which is the Surrealist Gallery for Peggy Guggenheim's Art of the Century Gallery in 1942. Um, and what you see is, is um, Peggy's collection of Surrealist painting on these beautiful, you know, curvilinear walls with examples of his Coralist furniture um, used for sitting and for displaying the works of art. And um, Kiesler developed this whole theory of correlation, uh, which really sort of fused all sorts of different aspects of sort of um, architectural theory, but also um, psychoanalysis and, and metaphysics and all sorts of things. Um, but what he, what's interesting is that he was very... Um, you know, he often explored the imagery of the womb, you know, the sort of womb-like comforting space, so that he felt that the kind of um, houses that uh, people should live in were sort of caves and yurts, you know, the most primitive type of home, because they were these sort of comforting womb-like spaces. And he went on to explore that in the Endless House project that went on for much of the rest of his life. Um, and in the exhibition, we have a couple of examples of his Coralist furniture and his treatise on, on uh, correlation and drawings from the Endless House project. So um, he, he very influential for the next generation um, of uh, architects and designers. So we then move to the next and sort of last section um, of the exhibition. Uh, this is called Displaying the Body. And it takes up the theme of, um, of the female body in Surrealism. Um, one of the arguments in this exhibition is that the reason that Surrealism is commodified so quickly is because of the very subject matters that the Surrealists are interested in. Nature, of course, leads to biomorphic form, which then very easily enters the home. 
the body, you know, the fact that they constantly mine this, this, this imagery um, means that um, it very quickly enters fashion, you know, uh, the commercial spheres of advertising, shop window display, and, of course, fashion photography absolutely transformed by surrealism. So um, this, this is really the subject of this section of the exhibition. And what I'm showing here is a mannequin um, created for the 19... 19- 38 surrealist exhibition in Paris where uh, a number of surrealist artists 16 of them were given a mannequin that then that they could dress or undress however they felt fit and they lined a kind of route into the exhibition with these mannequins sort of suggestive of a kind of red light district or you know the availability of these of these women um, and this this mannequin of course you know they explored all sorts of different themes some of them quite violent and fascistic and this mannequin became sort of the you know the archetypal surrealist treatment. It's by Andre Masson, of course, shows the you know the utter sort of um, um, objectification of the woman with the sort of cage over her head and the gagged mouth. Um, so the mannequin imagery. Um, the surrealists were interested in, actually stemmed back to de Chirico. Um, Breton had very early on identified de Chirico's metaphysical paintings, which of course predate surrealism as sort of proto-surrealist. So, I mean, de Chirico had already sort of explored why the mannequin was such a disturbing object, you know, this sort of relic of, you know, 19th century um, consumer culture um, it represented, you know, it was sort of alive and dead. It was erotic and it was sexless. It was um, animate, inanimate. There was all sorts of tensions and dualities in that mannequin that, for the surrealist, sort of summed up the contradictions of the modern world. Um, but of course, once the surrealist had sort of appropriated the mannequin and made it surreal, it was then very easy for people and commercial, you know, designers to then appropriate the surreal mannequin back into the sphere of, of commerce. And here we're looking at Elsa Schiaparelli's mannequin, um, Pascal, dressed up um, in her salon. And Elsa Schiaparelli, I can't really sort of overemphasize how important she is really for this process, for the taking of surrealist ideas and making them, um, you know, sort of much more accessible and, and widely available. Um, so Elsa Scaparelli had um, forged very close relationships with many of the surrealist artists and um, collaborated with them, employed them to produce designs for her, um, but then also created this, this sort of surreal um, tableau in her gallery in, in Paris. And uh, what we're looking at is we're inside her, her gallery looking out onto the Place Vendôme um, through the birdcage that she had created for her perfume business at the end of the 1930s, which became this sort of surreal space where she'd pose the mannequin dressed up or doing something. And you can see all the perfume bottles on the, on the, um, on the cage. And we're very lucky to have been able to track down this piece um, for the exhibition, and you'll see it upstairs with one of her mannequins in it, sort of suggestive of the way that she created these surreal tableau. And she realised you know, the commercial pulling power of surrealism. But, you know, she also um, worked with artists to create some of the most spectacular and, and important works of fashion of the century. And this is the astonishing skeleton dress of 1938, created with Salvador Dali, um, one of the most extraordinary black dresses of the century. Um, you know, this use of the sort of uh, quilted padding to create the ribs, this sort of very erotic dress, but also skin-tight black jersey, so it's like a sort of second skin <clears throat> this is the design that Dali did that the Scaparelli archives have, and then, of course, Elsa Scaparelli adapted that into the, into the black dress. Um, she also created with Dali the shoe hat. So this um, 
is an example of how they were kind of raiding the world of psychoanalysis and particularly Freudian theory um, to create these, these, these works. And, of course, Freud's theory of um, castration anxiety, where the fetish is created by taking an object and phallicizing the woman, in this case a, 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 a high-heeled shoe. So, um, you know, completely tapping into Freudian, Freudian uh, theory for this, for this work. Uh, and actually, this is a lovely example because it belonged to Gala Dali and then passed to her daughter, Cecily Eloire. Um, and, and we've been very lucky to be able to acquire it for the museum just recently. And one of the other areas that, of course, comes from <coughs> Freudian theory is, um, is the sort of id. Uh, and what we're looking at here is a cover of Minotaur, the Surrealist magazine, actually, um, that was supported. It was, it was paid for by Edward James. Um, and here's... Dali using all of his sort of iconography, um, the lobster, the draw, you know, the minotaur figure, the absinthe with the, with the cup. Um, but the minotaur is a theme that appears very frequently and it really is about exploring sort of the bestial nature of humanity, that the id was about um, humans having to gratify their, their most base desires, um, you know, a complex theory that then Scaparelli manages to kind of make into this fun fashion item, which is, um, of course, um, the woman revealing herself as an animal underneath, and here she is with a hairy sort of chest. Um, and what's most disturbing about this object is that it's actually made of monkey fur. So you've also got the added element of it being sort of man's closest um, relation. Um, I should add that this, this object hasn't arrived in the exhibition yet. It will do, I hope, in the next week or so. Um, but there's been a trouble with the, with the export licence for it. Um, but it, it will enter the exhibition. It's from Philadelphia Museum of Art. But um, Scapare is absolutely brilliant at encapsulating the, these ideas and making these highly fashionable um, objects. But Scaparelli wasn't the only artist, uh, well, the only couturier to be uh, exploring surrealist imagery. This is um, a jacket by Charles James, who was an Anglo-American uh, designer, one of the most technically gifted couturiers of the period. And this is, is actually very early. It's 1936, and it's known as the pneumatic jacket because, uh, of course, it changes the female body shape by creating this, you know, this extraordinary quilted form. And I can't help feeling that he must have been sort of looking at the Michelin Man sort of imagery, um, but, of course, it is this, you know, this, this pneumatic form, but nevertheless an absolutely extraordinary sort of elegant um, evening uh, coat. And some of the great highlights in this section of the exhibition, um, and I think you know, especially appeal to perhaps the you know, female members of, of, of the audience, the, um, the jewellery. The, the Dali jewels um, are... I mean, Dali is a key figure because he was just so extraordinary at sort of honing down ideas, honing down quite complex ideas into simple objects, apparently simple objects that then have a, you know, astonishing chains of association and this is his ruby lips brooch um, made of pearls and, and rubies where you have the sort of, you know, the luscious lips made of this, you know, in, this, this incredibly hard uh, material um, but one of the most extraordinary and interesting objects for me in the exhibition is this this is the the Etoile de Mer, the, the starfish brooch made for the socialite and sort of um, patron of the ballet, Rebecca Harkness. And of course that doesn't appear to be very surrealist, does it? It looks sort of quite naturalistic, really. Um, it's diamonds and rubies and it's a, you know, it's a starfish with um, butterflies that could be attached to the tentacles. Um, but it isn't until you see the way that Rebecca wore it 
um, that you realise its sort of surrealist um, implications. Uh, she, of course, positioned it on her breast um, in this very sort of you know suggestive way, wearing these very transparent dresses. Um, and of course, um, you also have to know a little bit about the object. The object itself is is fully articulated. Each finger of the starfish can move and can be manipulated. It's an extraordinarily you know technical sort of tour de force. So they literally mimic fingers. I mean, they, it is like a double for the hand in, in, in this um, case. And, of course, there she is with uh, Andy Warhol. And I should add that Andy Warhol was a great admirer of Dali and collected his jewellery. Um, in this section, we also have a small group of works um, that explore uh, fashion photography and advertising. Advertising is a sphere that is completely transformed by surrealism. And it's, it's arguable that, you know, we still, of course, see surrealist-inspired adverts and advertising campaigns um, now. Um, and really, the key figure for the fashion photograph is Man Ray. Man Ray is interesting because he manages to stay right at the forefront of sort of uh, formal developments in surrealism. Andre Breton never criticizes Man Ray for his, you know, commercial activity, even though he had been a fashion photographer, you know, had a very successful career throughout the 20s and. 30s. Um, and I think probably one of the reasons for that is that uh, th there was a credible sort of fluidity of ideas for Man Ray travelling between his, his sort of um, his, his commercial work and um, his work as a surrealist artist. And one of the main things that he develops with the fashion photograph is this, you know, extraordinary cropping and dismemberment, um, you know, something that just changes the way that we, we, you know, that people saw the fashion photograph, that the woman is literally objectified and becomes, you know, elements and here we have a hand, you know, sort of disembodied and floating, and of course the beautiful outline um, of the of the nose and chin. And uh, he was uh, followed by many photographers at the time. He literally sort of, you know, he changed the, the fashion photograph almost overnight. And just an example of that is this is a, a photograph by the German photographer Horst, um, and it's the um, a photograph for advertising a, a Mambouchet corset, but of course it's the ultimate um, sort of erotic, um, objectified image of a woman as well, where she's completely depersonalised. Uh, you know, her torso has been cut off, and uh, and uh, you know we just look at, at at her as an object and at this sort of erotic, um, um, sort of almost fetishising of her in the corset. Um, and the fashion magazines were extremely quick to realise um, how sort of uh, powerful surrealism was, and they uh, most of the art, art directors employed surrealist artists to produce uh, both content for the magazine and covers. And this is Dali's cover for Vogue. But what also happened was many graphic designers just flipped into a surrealist idiom. Um, and this is uh, an artist who is perhaps better known as, a, as an artist working in the deco style, Cassandre, probably the most important sort of graphic artist in France in this period. And what you see him here doing is sort of appropriating imagery from, from Magritte and um, elsewhere to create this sort of surrealist cover for Harper's Bazaar. And of course it is Magritte that um, is, ends up being probably the most influential figure for the way that um, uh, advertising imagery develops. Um, Magritte had worked as a graphic designer initially before he became an artist and he had a, a, um, a studio. He continued to run a studio throughout his career. And of course he'd learnt many of the lessons from advertising, um, you know, lessons about the sort of importance of the motif, um, the, the, the change of scale, 
Um, and those he imported into his painting. And then, of course, many graphic designers looked at his painting and re-imported them back into advertising. So what you see is the use of um, you know, giant objects, cloudscapes. Um, of course, this is quoting the false mirror, the painting by Magritte, which has a... Uh, an iris with, uh, you know, an eye with an iris with clouds floating behind it. Um, but this is actually by the British artist Hans, uh, German artist who moved to Britain, Hans Schlager. So, you know, Magritte really um, hugely um, influential. Um, and that's really where we'd, I'd like to, to end this, although I will just add that... Um, another whole section and of course we could have done a show twice as big as the one upstairs and it is it is quite big um i mean we have included examples but we could have done a whole uh, expert on film you know the the influence of surrealism on film was immense um we've just chosen some examples by cocteau uh hitchcock and uh, hans richter to show how surrealist sort of dream imagery fed into um, film and even now, when you see a sort of a dream sequence in a film, it nearly is always surrealistic. Um, so uh, those were the, really the main ways: advertising and film and fashion that surrealism entered a wider sphere and still affects us today. Thank you. <laughs>